you wade out from the shore. And already feel that you must be at the mercy of another set of variables altogether. Just the way the water is rushing in a strange continuum around your calves. Even here you feel the eerie pull of the distant entity that is the ocean. Even as you're just leaving the beach. Your feet disappear. Your body descends, fades out of view. Step by step you move into a strange realm. You might go the whole hog and vanish too. Oh, for sure others belong here. They know it well and they love it. It's home for them. I've seen a poster of all the various sea creatures I might possibly come upon in southern waters in the ocean around my home. For reference purposes only, they're all bunched up, grouped close together, even overlapping. The sea isn't that crowded, I don't think. But in this poster, there they are, partying in a small blue room. The gummy shark, the stingray, the rock lobster, the sea urchin, the southern calamari. The poster's in the dunny of my friend Shack. She's a free diver. Much more than me, she knows what it's like to be in those deep environments. It seems a dim, muted, but spectacular world down there. The creatures of that country seem to be the expression of a different part of the universe's imagination than what we're used to. It seems like infinity down there. And so there's no reason to accept any expectations on how things might be done. My friend told me that her teacher had roared in celebration as she'd resurfaced after a rather ambitious stint in the drink. It hollered at her exuberantly. You wouldn't be dead for quids, eh? My friend's ears were still readjusting from the time underwater. She couldn't really hear what his carry-on was all about. She had no idea what he was shouting at her. She thought that something terribly wrong had happened. I said you wouldn't be dead for quids. I guess the transition between terrestrial and marine existences is often not that simple. My own efforts are embarrassing. I sprint from the shore and somersault into the surf. And then I splash around feverishly, frightening the seagulls off, only to retreat back to my towel to sunbake. My excuse is that I can't see when I'm out there. My glasses are tucked up into my shoes back on the beach, and who knows whether the dark shadows beneath me are bits of bull kelp, or stingrays, or a great white. But still, I reckon that deep is one of the most beautiful words we have in the English language. Perhaps you'll agree with me. 
Think about it, just for a moment. Hold the word in your mind. Play with it in your mouth. Then picture yourself dropping away from the surface, passing through the flickering, crystal-encrusted layers of tropical blue. Amethyst, turquoise. Kick hard against what feels normal and dive towards where it's darkest. In the murkiest space you can imagine, where amorphous shapes bump around, where each of your senses warps, where the pressure starts to condense around you, where your thoughts are compacted, where nerves are frazzled, where memory frays, where so much of the feeling in your heart is that mysterious experience of pain where the way it hurts is also blissful and beautiful. This is the deep. We don't go there much. Perhaps we ought to undergo some training if we're going to go there often. But we shouldn't rule it out altogether. I secretly like this relationship I have with the surf. The sea is the source of so many of our great stories. And it fits many marine fables quite well, this impediment of mine. The fact that all I get of the subaqueous atmosphere is blurred. That I only encounter it in glimpses and flashes. Shimmering motion, vague figures. It's a place that us humans perceive only in part. Even the divers. Sometimes when I see a veil of surf lift and then collapse on itself, I imagine it as a shining curl of life. Schools of fish, plankton, crustaceans. A symbol of the whole fleeting, flashing vision of existence. From somewhere still, silent and remote, this fringe of energy manifests itself, then vanishes around my knees as I stand in it. The pull of the current. The ocean's draw. The way it tugs at you. It's like the idea of the infinite. Or the eternal. Concepts which still seem to drag on us, even as we try to ditch them. And somewhere in the scarcely seen depths, I can hardly see the surface. Somewhere there is a myriad of majestic forms, ideas that we could never have come up with ourselves. Beings which have evolved spectacularly, preposterously, garish and gorgeous. Like so much of life, it's a whole realm of existence that we could never have guessed at. But as you can tell, I don't mind letting metaphor take over. My freediver mate, I suspect, will find so much poetry a bit distracting, really. Not that her attachment to the sea is entirely practical. She sent me a video of herself wearing a squid on her head. A dead squid, which she'd caught spearfishing, and which was still flickering with colour. Its whole body pulsing with neon lights. 
the chromatophores flashing off and on, even though the last dregs of life were gone from the squid's body. It wasn't a great cabaret act. But at least she has been down there to check what it's really like. She has touched the flesh of pelagic fish, brawled with the arms of octopus, seen the skin of cuttlefish flash and shimmer, and worn a squid on her head. Me? I just splash around a bit and then retreat to solid ground. The greatest known abyss on our planet is the Mariana Trench. A half-moon-shaped trough in the western Pacific Ocean. A tear in the crust of the Earth that is deeper than Mount Everest is high. If a person was to attempt to descend unprotected to these depths, the pressure would crush them long before they arrived. Only a couple dozen people have ever gone to the bottom of the Mariana Trench cooped up in submarines. Maybe that's already too many. But apparently we've mapped more of the moon than the Pacific Ocean. They say there's around 170 million cubic litres of water in the Pacific. Which is a number that I can't fathom. And that's a good nautical way to describe my ignorance. To me, the existence of a vast, unhuman realm is pleasing, given what humans have done to much of the planet. Yet so curious is our species, so tantalised and tormented by a need for novelty, to know everything. We are, of course, going down there increasingly often, bearing all manner of machines, cameras and measuring devices. And, of course, plastic debris has already been found down there. Just in case you were worried that we hadn't yet created so much rubbish that it has reached literally every corner and crevice of the globe, no matter how deep. A few years back, scientists had descended some distance into the abyss, some seven or eight thousand feet, when they caught a glimpse of what's called a magna pinna, or big fin squid. They had in fact been filming a little water plant, which was surely exciting enough. 
but they then chose to train their cameras on this meeting with the big fin squid, which they followed to more than double their original depth, to 5,000 odd metres beneath the surface of the ocean. I've seen the film footage. The squid seems to me like a ghostly submarine mosquito, or an incandescent white moth with long thin legs dangling off a small body. Or else like a child's kite I once saw suspended in the sky at dusk in the tropics. Marine researchers are attempting to survey the ocean floor in different parts of the world in earnest. Trawling the depths with great nets, they gather an astounding coterie of creatures. Grotesque, glowing, milky beasts. Bulky brutes with reflective bug eyes. Crabs with enormous gangly legs. Other crustaceans with hard, pale shells. Elongated, eel-like fish with gasping mouths that seem to live forever. The deepest parts of the ocean are probably the weirdest to us. They're animals the most like aliens. These are creatures that live without light. They operate on energy sources very different from ours, like relying on volcanic vents in the same way that we use the sun. Yet unexpectedly, the big fin squid with its skinny spider-like arms trailing off into the darkness. To me, it simply seemed beautiful. Looking at a big fin squid, you get a bit of an idea where the name cephalopod comes from. Literally translated, the word means head foot, as if that was all that comprised the anatomy of a cephalopod. A bunch of legs stuck onto a big noggin. But of course they're more complicated beasts than that. The cephalopod mob includes squid, octopuses, cuttlefish and nautiluses. There are more than 800 species across these families. And that includes 300 different species of squid. Now, there are plenty of differences between squid and octopus. But an easy one for us to recognise is that octopus have eight arms, while squid have eight arms and two tentacles. This, I'm sure you will instantly notice, means that Squidward from Spongebob Squarepants is an octopus and not a squid. An outrageous act of childhood deception. Octopus and squid also have different travelling styles. Squid primarily propel themselves by pushing water through their mantle, which is a kind of airbag supported by strong muscles. Octopus also have a mantle, but they don't use it as much. They aren't such active swimmers, and more often they kind of scoot around on the seafloor. To understand a little more of the mechanics of cephalopod physiology, let's mentally take a squiz at the colossal squid or the Antarctic squid as some call it, which likes to hang out in Antipodean waters around a kilometre below sea level. Their arms are around one metre long, and the two tentacles reach more than two metres in length. 
The colossal squid has three hearts, all cephalopods do, and these pump blood at high pressure around the body. Blue blood, because it uses copper rather than iron to bind with the oxygen. The colossal squid has a pair of gills, it has two fins, and in total it weighs 500 odd kilos, making it the heaviest living invertebrate. And the colossal squid has enormous eyes, each one the size of a soccer ball. The pupils too are pretty big, 8 to 9 centimetres in diameter. And all of this is meant to make sure they get every last skerrick of light into their eyes in that darkest of arenas. For down there under the surface of the southern ocean, the colossal squid hangs around on the lookout for prey. Like us, colossal squid face forward with binocular vision, which makes it more efficient at judging distances and perhaps makes it a more dexterous hunter. The design of their eyes makes them great for seeing in fine detail, which is augmented by complex lobes in their brains for processing visual information. And furthermore, colossal squid, like many other squid, also have special light organs, one on each eyeball, which produce light whenever the squid's eyes turn inwards to focus right in front of them. So they're not fumbling around in the dark when they go to grasp some poor creature. Perhaps it's like having built-in bioluminescent headlights. Yet it's also said that cephalopods are colorblind, which is a bit confusing because so many cephalopods camouflage themselves, so they must have a way of nutting out the color palette around them, right? It seems that the skin of octopus and cuttlefish and squid have light-sensitive proteins in them, and it may be that these perceive the light waves that make color in the environments around them, like their skin is doing the seeing for them. Likewise, it used to be said that squid can't hear anything, and scientists have mostly assumed also that squid don't make sounds. But the first of these facts has been proven false. Recent research has shown, of certain squid species at least, that they can hear low-frequency noises, and that they make rapid, instinctive responses to these. Alas, many of the noises humans have begun making underwater, such as the sounds of ships' engines, or seismic surveys, or marine drilling, these noises fall within the hearing range of squid. Research hasn't yet identified exactly what all this sonic interference does to them. But noise pollution has been shown to have a negative effect on the lives of a range of other marine life, from whales and dolphins to shrimp and even seagrass. So we're probably bothering them. As for whether or not squid make sounds? Well, maybe we wouldn't be the ones to know. Underwater seems like a quiet place to us. Just a muffled burbling, a murky, swirling mumble. But actually, sound waves travel much faster in water than air. Particles are more densely packed into water, and so they carry noise further. 
It's just that human ears have evolved to hear sound in air. So we don't catch as much when we're submerged. Obviously scientists don't just dunk their heads into the drink to find out whether marine animals are making noises or not, but still it seems a bit silly that it's us deciding who speaks or listens down there. If we could ask whales to draft up a report on underwater bioacoustics, we'd be better off. But they are yet to accept that commission. There is one mysterious, maybe mythical sound in the annals of aquatic audio, known colloquially as the bloop. A strange, loud sound, captured by a Cold War microphone. A noise which as yet is unexplained. One of the theories suggests that the bloop was a kind of scream or shout, made, maybe, by a massive squid. Which consequently would be bigger than any squid we've ever come upon. That would be a bloody big squid. So it seems a bit of a stab in the dark. Rather implausible, really. But what it tells us in turn is that we truly don't know a lot of what's going on down there. That there's a lot to discover. And throughout the centuries, squid have served as a pretty useful symbol for the many unknowns the world still gives to us. Along with which come fear, curiosity, faith and fantasy. No one seems to be entirely sure what big fin squid get up to throughout their eternal nights in the deep. Every few years, another video of a Magna Pinna species seems to appear, caught by roving underwater cameras, as if to simply remind us that we don't know what's going on in that enormous space, which in fact belongs to those who are not like us. The ocean holds something like 95% of our biosphere. That we don't know too much about it tells us that there is a lot of mystery left on our planet. There are plenty of surprises left for us. The History of Animals by Aristotle isn't exactly a current zoological textbook. It was written in about 350 BC, and there are some real blunders in it, some doozies. Yet Aristotle did make some pretty good observations about marine life. Apparently the ancient philosopher would go down to a lagoon on the Greek island of Lesvos and watch the local fishers in action. He wrote what is probably the oldest piece of literature about cephalopods, a little passage about cuttlefish. When it's frightened and in terror, he wrote, it produces this blackness and muddiness in the water, as if it were a shield held in front of the body.
But aside from the ink, squid, octopus and cuttlefish have other strategies for disappearing. They can camouflage themselves by changing colour or producing bioluminescence to confuse predators. Take, for instance, the midwater squid. In its eyes and on its underside it has photophores, little light-producing spots, which the squid switches on at night when it rises towards the surface of the sea to feed on the small invertebrates that largely make up its diet. The midwater squid seemingly has a thermostat and switches its lights on based on the temperature of the water. It can do different colours. Blue in cool seas and greener hues in warmer water. The idea is that from beneath it looks like a fairly shapeless, shadowy silhouette in the dim light. Although I have also read that human hunters thus find them pretty easy to catch. So it's not all smooth sailing for the midwater squid, I guess. They need as many tactics as possible to survive because the ocean is a fiercely competitive place. All cephalopods have plenty of predators after them. Sharks, seals, eels, sea snakes, large fish and seabirds will all have a go at them. And their eggs are targeted as well. So many cephalopods will lay these in the thousands as a kind of insurance against losing a lot of them. And there are other techniques to ensure the successful birth of offspring. Breeding females of the octopus called Argonauta Argo create a thin shell-like basket for themselves and retreat into these with their 40,000-odd embryos after mating. What we see washed up on our shores and call the paper nautilus is in fact this octopus's egg case which can be confusing because the actual nautilus is from a different family of cephalopods with a different sort of shell. But anyway. If we want to talk about the history of animals, we ought at least briefly go into the evolution of cephalopods. It's a long and complex tale. As cephalopods have evolved from the first mollusk, which seems to have appeared a bit over... 500 million years ago. They've obviously gone through huge amounts of change. The ancestors of today's squids have even survived a couple of mass extinction events. Ancient cephalopods had elaborate shells of calcium carbonate, but over millions of years they began to wrap the skin and muscle of their mantles over this shell, kind of swallowing it, internalising it, but that happened around 160 million years ago. Before that, the ancestor cephalopods had a diverse set of different shells. It seems that at first it was a temporary move, the swallowing of the shell, which happened at a certain season in the cephalopod's life. But over millennia it proved to be such a handy adaptation that all cephalopods today, apart from the nautilus, have lost their shells entirely. Now, without the shell to protect them, these animals needed to evolve a different technique for surviving. The development of both the ink sac and bioluminescence occurred as the use of the shell began to diminish. 
their form changed a little bit too, so they could swim more athletically, making them better at catching prey, and evading other predators, and meeting mating partners. They also became significantly more intelligent. Sometime later, humans would also put their adaptive energy into intelligence, rather than protective mechanisms. So we have a bit in common there. Cephalopods are cunning predators. Carnivores armed with sharp beaks with which they chop up their prey into nice bite-sized bits. Whatever prey they're taking on, squid use their arms to immobilise their opponents, to pin them down, and also to club them. They're terrific ambushes. Their skills with camouflaging themselves famous, not only through changing skin colour, but also through building screens made of shells and stones. They hunt for fish, crabs, shrimp, mollusks, jellyfish, and even other cephalopods. Many, in fact, are cannibals. A while back, a researcher at the University of Tasmania was able to confirm that the smushed-up bits of meat inside the digestive tract of a giant squid that was washed up on our beaches was in fact made up of another giant squid. Their fisticuffs take place kilometres beneath the surface of the ocean, so we don't yet know much about why they get into punch-ups and eat each other. I imagine that as an enormous, multi-limbed, deep-sea sumo-wrestling match. But that might be my imagination getting the best of me. And then there are the battles between giant squid and sperm whales. Surely the biggest interspecies brawl of them all, a wrestling match the mass of which is hard to conceptualise. Again, since we've never seen the actual encounters between these animals, only the aftermath, we can't say exactly what they look like. But squid beaks have been found in whale bellies, and whales have washed up lacerated with tentacle scars. So we know that these are fierce to the death fights. Another photograph I saw caught a female sperm whale with a three and a half metre long squid arm sticking out of its gob. So I guess we know who won that round. And the whale was with her calves and scientists reckoned she was teaching them how to hunt. How lovely, and terrifying, and grotesque, and majestic. And there is, of course, a smaller predator that's hard for squid of any size to tackle. An animal that's surely infamous for its rapacious nature and brutal hunting techniques. That would be us.
The Tasmanian writer Robbie Arnott has whipped up stories about all sorts of animals. Quolls and herons and water rats. In one of his novels there's a mystical species of squid, which the locals of a quiet port town catch by traditional methods in order to acquire the squid's iridescent ink. The ink is special, you see. It gives an extra intensity to whatever it mixes with. For example, when it's added to paint, it makes colours vivid, can make a painting more beautiful. It turns out that to coax the creatures to the surface of the water so that the ink might be harvested, the squid fishers cut themselves and use their own blood as bait part of a secret ritual of sacrifice that has developed in that unnamed part of the world over generations. I'm not sure exactly, but it struck me as something of a metaphor for the writer's existence. To create a beautiful story, you've sometimes got to draw your own blood. And in Robbie's book, someone comes to commercialise the magic squid ink industry. A crass, fierce, money-mad northerner. Maybe a metaphor in that as well, something the Tasmanian readership might recognise. Anyway, this part of the book seems partly to be a fable about the way that humans have used and abused other animals for far too long in a unilateral, one-dimensional relationship that does none of us any good. We treat other animals simply as resources when in fact they are our fellow travellers in this world, sharing with us and contributing to the ever-changing ecosystems on which we rely, in which we live and love, and with a bit of luck, in which we'll carry on. But it's an era in which most of us yearn to draw closer to other creatures, Robbie's not the only one who's writing books with non-humans at the centre of them. I feel like every fiction book I pick up is about a person in some kind of relationship with an octopus or a greyhound or a dingo or a unicorn. Likewise with visual art, in our paintings, in our tattoos, in marketing. Everywhere they proliferate, images of these other animals. Our cobbers on this beautiful troubled planet, bandicoots and monkeys and orange-bellied parrots. Maybe there's a sense that we're all on a sinking ship together, fretfully sharing an era of extinction. I'll try not to be too cynical about that. This could indeed be the basis of friendship. We'll see. Writers and visual artists may well be especially inclined to think of squid ink as a possible link between us and other creatures. The word calamari has a direct connection with the word for pen in a swathe of different languages. Kulmus in Hebrew, Kalamus in Latin, Khalam in Arabic and Hindi. 
We are trying to use such meagre instruments to make connections across space and time. It's not only us. And it's not an entirely new or literary phenomenon. You don't have to look far into the folklore of any culture to see that we like to bring these animals to the forefront of our stories, to make them heroes. But still, it's worth noticing how ubiquitous and urgent it seems right now to have other animals as our friends and role models and champions. We seem to have given up on human heroes. We want these critters to have faith in us. Craig Foster from My Octopus Teacher said it this way, If you gain the trust of that animal over a period of months, it will actually ignore you to a certain degree and carry on with its normal life and allow you to step inside its secret world. Doesn't that sound like a dream? To get close to another creature, to make a pact of friendship with them, to have some reciprocal agreement, shared experiences. But perhaps whether or not we could befriend Squid wouldn't come down just to us. A while back at the University of Tasmania, Dr. David Sin did some intriguing research on the personalities of squid. Personalities, for want of a better word. He focused on the species Euprimna tasmanica, the so-called southern dumpling squid, which is found in waters around southern Australia, including Tassie, of course. Dr. Sin said that generally the southern dumpling squid tends to be a pretty unsociable animal. Solitary, kind of brutal, a bit violent. They cannibalise their neighbours, for example, and mates by fairly unromantic methods. Some squid, his research found, are bolder or more brutal than others. Others are a bit shyer or more cautious. When given a threatening stimulus, some will swiftly launch an attack, while others will try and flee from it. These different traits, of course, will be attractive to different sorts of potential mates. And while social qualities are partly hereditary, they're also affected by their environment. The studies suggest that amongst different squid, about 30% of these social characteristics are inherited which means that there's a fair bit of environmental context to take into account. But then maybe it's only natural that squid can suss out pretty quickly if being less aggro or a bit bolder will be more effective depending on conditions. And it shows that squid are survivors. As Dr Sin also points out, a population that includes a range of social techniques has a better chance to survive big disturbances. All this makes me wonder what it would feel like if we wound up getting turned away by squid and other cephalopods, by all the other animals. Again on the news recently I saw a video of an octopus hugging a diver, cuddling up like they were old cobbers. But we all know that such tenderness, 
Such intimacy isn't easily achieved, not with individuals of our own species, let alone with different creatures. Maybe I am a pessimist, but it seems typical of human hubris that we believe that other animals would express love for us if only they knew how to. I suspect that if we work out how to communicate with other critters, we might want to brace ourselves for rejection. Or at least a bloody stern talking to. But we want the secret ink that changes what we make into something more beautiful. We want to know these other animals. We want to come close to them. Perhaps sharing something with the creatures with whom our own species has coexisted for so long is one of the key pieces of the puzzle when it comes to trying to reconcile with our environments to heal a rupture that we created through ignorance and accident. But we may also need to try some different methods of knowing. It may take a deep dive into a place within ourselves that we have rarely gone. Change takes courage. And sympathy starts with imagination. Once I plumbed down level by level into the sea, into the realm of the falling debris, dead and dying fish-eating creatures, into the pitch-black frigid waters, and blind, long-tentacled things. Down among the deep water canyons I went, and still nowhere near was I to the outer core of the Earth's interior, its massive indoors. That's how the English poet Greta Stoddard puts it. We go as deep as we can, Endure the intense pressure and try to adjust our eyes to the lack of light. We find ourselves with creatures we've never seen before. We say these are not our neighbours. But we realise they have selves like ours. Senses we can almost comprehend. Hopes and dreams we can nearly understand. And maybe in the dark we can get a different picture of ourselves. Because there's something about losing our edges that might force us to have another look at what shape we really take. Now carefully you let yourself float upwards. Do not resist your buoyancy. Observe how light filters inch by inch into the salt water. A gradient of colour gently ekes its way into your atmosphere. You are silhouetted, a shadow ascending, as if miraculously, levitating, resurrecting. Fish flashing around you like pirates' treasure. And yes, cephalopods propelling their way through the water, squirting themselves about, squeezing their mantles, pulsing with colours. You leave them behind and tenderly return to your world. To the bare sun. To broad vistas. 
to bold colours, to the voices of birds and dogs and other people, for better or for worse. And I rose to the surface, wrote Greta Stoddard, like one who had only that to do, where slowly over the years all that I held dear came loose. And I took to wandering the fields that covered the earth. So back to the surface then. Maybe as you emerge, come back to the surface of the ocean, you see a man. He starts yelling at you. Your ears are all clogged up, closed over. He shouts some more. What? You cry. He seems hysterical. Repeats himself again. You're sure he couldn't have because it makes no sense. He'd be casting a long bow, but it really does seem like he's shouting. Wouldn't be dead for squid. Wouldn't be dead for squid. Squid.